Hello and welcome to the Treehouse Letter. I am Milan Shatton, uh, your host and producer, and this is where we share true stories, essays, and letters about everything that matters and just as much that doesn't, um, where we are always learning with a bit of fun. Today's podcast is titled, What Music Teaches Us About Writing. I met with the Creative Writing Forum at West Point to discuss what music can teach us about writing. These happen to be two of my favorite things on the planet, music and writing. Cadets pass the bowl of hand tambourines and maracas, also known as egg shakers, which I brought for them. And we kicked off the session by listening to Billy Joel on Spotify sing The Piano, the piano Man. So let me... All right, so the piano man is at his microphone, which smelled like a beer and pounds the piano, which sounds like a carnival. The students read the lyrics and thumped their shakers to the beat. A few sang along. The smell of beer and the sounds of the carnival are sensual words or of the senses. And the students listened to a story about Davy, who's still in the Navy and probably will be for life. About Paul, the real estate novelist and the waitress who is practicing politics. With characters and story and conflict, this is a barroom ballad about life and loneliness and broken people. They come to the bar and put bread in Bill's jar as the manager gives him a smile. They ask the piano man to sing them a song to forget about life for a while. How the hell did a 24-year-old write one of the greatest songs of all time as his first single? This was one of the comments on the official video, and which has 211 million views. And it's true. Joel was in Los Angeles in 1973, working as a lounge pianist under the name of Billy Martin, his first and middle names. He was trying to get out of his going nowhere New York contract. Now he said the characters were based on real people, on his life as the piano man. There's development through verses with new characters and conflict, and the music comes back to the opening, returning to the initial chord or key signature. It's a waltz in three-quarter time in the key of C major. In music, this return to the initial chord is called resolution. In story, it is also called resolution. Just like song, for writing to be good, it must have rhythm. Now this has taken me decades to learn and I wanted to share this with the students because it was a leap for me. One I came across in Haruki Murakami's memoir, Absolutely on Music. Now this is a book about a series of conversations with the former conductor of the Boston Symphony, Seiji Ozawa. So the novelist meets the maestro and they talk. <laughs> so here's what the novelist has to say on writing in rhythm. No one ever taught me how to write and I never made a study of writing techniques. So how did I learn to write? From listening to music. And what's the most important thing in writing? It's rhythm. No one's going to read what you write unless it's got rhythm. It has to have an inner rhythmic feel that propels the reader forward. And that's an excerpt from Absolutely On Music, 
Conversations with Seiji Ozawa on page 98 to 99. So this observation, even to my musical ear, I'm not a professional musician, but I have been playing music and playing piano, Celtic harp, violin and fiddle, since I have been reading words. And even to me, this sounded extreme. So I chose this as my premise for my graduate work on the craft of writing. And after much consideration and research, I have found it to be true. Whether the students were believers or whether you are, dear listener, remains unclear. Sophia nodded as she thought about it. John talked about his work on the sonnet, the rhythm in the words. Lindsay and Cora said it gave them something to think about. Does rhythm matter? So I passed a handout. I shared a handout with examples like I'll share them like these. And you ask yourself if the rhythm or the cadence of the words work. The work of the text is to literalize the signifiers of the first encounter, dismantling the ideal as an idol. In this literalization, the idolatrous deception of the first moment becomes readable. <laughs> so that's an excerpt from a passage uh, or an article in the Atlantic about the needless academies um, in uh, needless complexity of academic writing. But I'm not sure of the complexity, it's just broken. Um, here's one more, there's a couple here, but I'll read this one. Above all, we cannot play ducks and drakes with a native battery of idioms, which prescribes egregious collocations of vocables as the basic put up with for tolerate or put at a loss for bewilder. Professor Lancelot Hogman, Interglossia. This is actually an excerpt from George Orwell's Politics in the English Language. And he shares uh, with his readers in 1946, his concerns with the mental vices from which we now suffer. These are five passages and they are a little below the average. <laughs> so I am sharing with you one. So there is clearly abstract words like literalization and literalize and signifiers. And there are double negatives. There is pedantry, awkward rhythm, in fact, broken rhythm. Bad writing's common. Bad writing is everywhere. <laughs> I've written lots of bad stuff. And most of my writing undergoes revisions at least three times, often a dozen or more. Now here's the music in prose, what I like to call the music in prose. Examples of writing that stays with you because not only does the rhythm work, but the writer has something to say. Beautiful writing hardly sticks with us unless it is meaningful tied to a truth or a story. Here's an example, the first example. There is the silence after a rainstorm and before a rainstorm, and these are not the same. There is the silence of emptiness, the silence of fear, the silence of doubt. So this is a passage from two sentences from West with the Night by Beryl Markham. The rhythm has polysyndeton and asyndeton, which is big words for saying there's conjunctions used when they stretch out the silence after the rainstorm and before a rainstorm, and these are not the same. And there's asyndeton where they just have the three beats with a tricolon, emptiness, fear, 
down the silence of emptiness, silence of fear, the silence of doubt without the end. Um, there's euphony, which is pleasing to hear. There's repetition. The word silence is used four times in those two sentences. And it's just easy to read and pleasing to listen to. Now, the story attached to these two lines, the author is on, or the author is the first solo pilot to fly west across the Atlantic at night. Rhythm starts with her title, West with the Night. In this passage, Markham is walking up to a downed bush pilot's plane, and there's no pilot. She takes us in scene, and she shares the feeling of silence. She builds tension. The silence before and after the storm are different. Think about it. The first with anxiety, the second with peace. The three beats without conjunctions hit the reader with feelings that we know, emptiness and fear and doubt. It's pleasing to listen to, the soft S sounds, the echoes and the use of the word silence. And here's how she ends the passage, which goes on from the bottom of one page into the next. I knew Woody was not dead, period. It was not that kind of silence. And as a reader, my heart rests. I know he's okay. He's addled and incoherent, but he lives. So here's an interesting rewording of the passage. The silence before and after a rainstorm is not the same. The rainstorm makes me feel emptiness, fear, and doubt. Now listen to the original. There is a silence after a rainstorm and before a rainstorm, and these are not the same. There is a silence of emptiness, the silence of fear, the silence of doubt. Can you hear the difference? This is the second and last example, and it's um, from a collection of essays, Consider the Lobster by David Foster Wallace. And this is the quote. I'm not trying to give you a PETA-like screed here, M dash, at least I don't think so. I'm trying rather to work out and articulate some of the troubling questions that arise amid all the laughter and saltation and community pride of the Maine Lobster Festival. The truth is that if you, the festival attendee, permit yourself to think that lobsters could suffer and would rather not. The MLF begins to take on this aspect of something like a Roman circus or medieval torture fest. All right, so in the rhythm he's using double and triple beats, right? Workout, articulate, triple beats, laughter, insultation, community pride. He creates new words like pedalite, the people for the ethical treatment of animals dash like because he doesn't want to be, at the time that he wrote this, like virtue signaling. He just wants to talk to you, the reader, candidly. Um, there's three-beat modifier. He uses caps for MLF, and it's kind of poking fun at the main lobster festival, like WWF or IRS might. And he has this casual tone where he invokes the reader with the second-person pronoun of you and yourself. He's implicating you or the reader in the weighing of the issue, the moral consideration of the lobster and whether it suffers. So the tension, the sentence crescendo is from 16 words. There's only three sentences, 16, 29, and 38 words. It draws out meaning to the paragraph climax and the final word drives home the point of the essay, torture fest. <laughs> so Wallace or DFW is assigned by Gourmet Magazine to cover the Maine Lobster Festival. But what he does is he takes us into the festival, turns it on his head. He makes the reader consider the lobster, 
with new words, this fresh, engaging tone. Listen, I'm not virtue signaling. I'm not PETA-like. But if we allow ourselves to be and think of the lobster, that this mega-sized cooking pot and their movement against the deathly steam bath and the squeals of hundreds of lobsters, that many of these that he researches and discusses in the fuller essay, then as he builds to the climax, the whole thing is a final word torture fest. So the readers, or we, evolve from foodie to friend. The rhythm of prose is all about sentences. So as a writer and a listener and a person who uses the language, vary your sentences. How do you do that? It's as I've been doing in this paragraph. Vary them. It's two words. You may start with a declarative sentence or statement. Use an imperative, which is simply a directive, and ask a question. You vary not only the type of sentence, but the length, long and short, the order, the structure, and use conjunctions and omit conjunctions and think about writing as a craft. Use two beats and three beats and four beats or skip the conjunctions altogether. And when you read, read like a writer. That is when you get to a passage in your work, in school or whatever you're reading, study good writing when you find something you like. And for bad writing, stop and check out why the rhythm fails because that teaches us too. And art, not artifice. Prose, rhythm, and cadence should be transparent and visible. Read your writing aloud to hear the rhythm. Ursula Le Guin wrote, prose sets its deeper, its beauty, its proper beauty and power deeper, hiding it in the work as a whole. So what does music have to do with good writing? Everything. The best music, like the best writing, depicts beauty and truth. We don't need analysis to know that we like what we like and we love what we love. Music and writing may reveal joy or sorrow, lifting the soul or plunging it into despair. Every human emotion may be represented in music and in language. The skillful construction of notes or words gives us pleasure and meaning. So I let the cadets keep the percussive shakers and Moni asked about my last slide, which is if you want to write, and I have an asterisk and very, very small print below, but the three bullets are write daily, read widely, and writer's toolbox. Now, don't bang yourself over the head if you can't write daily, but write frequently. And the asterisk is for the disclaimer, which is always read the fine print. And if you must write, use what's helpful that I shared and lose the rest. Moni asked, he wanted to know what read widely meant. He was curious about other formats, music and podcasts and film. Yes, I answered. It was a great question. All of it, read, listen, read with your ears, watch. First was the word and it was divine and it was spoken. So cadets took the percussive shakers to remember what to do if they hit a writing wall, shake, the shaker, and remember that you speak and you can talk it out and dictate into your phone. So you may not be a professional musician or writer, students and listeners, but you have been listening to music since you were probably in utero and you've been reading since you were in grade school. So you are expert listeners and 
expert readers. And you can use that skill to help find your own voice, to hear it after you've gotten it down. And that's pretty much the end of the podcast. I do have the writer's toolbox, which is how to improve writing immediately. And we talked about that by varying your sentences and length and type and trying new combinations and use figures of speech and try beats, double beats and triple beats, series, lists, um, and work on craft. Uh, so please visit treehouseletter.com to look at some of the links to Orwell's Politics in the English Language, to Beryl Markham's uh, book, West with the Night, and other things we mentioned. Um, and always, as always, thank you for listening.